This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. Welcome to This Week in Pediatric Oncology. I am your guest host today, Dr. Neil A. Shaw. I'm an assistant professor in uh, pediatric hematology and oncology at Nationwide Children's. And I am very happy to have with us today Dr. Michael Hogarty. Hello there. So Dr. Hogarty is associate professor of pediatrics at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and the Perelman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. And he is a physician scientist, uh, and his lab is focused on a, a variety of novel therapeutic approaches to neuroblastoma. So we're very excited to have him here to talk about uh, his experiences and uh, what uh, future directions that we can uh, be looking forward to in treating this uh, uh, quite horrible disease. So uh, again, thanks for, for joining us today. So uh, Dr. Hargerty, if you can just uh, tell us a little bit about what led you to neuroblastoma? When was really that moment where you knew this is the disease I want to tackle, this is a, and I want to go into research? Well, uh, during my fellowship in Philadelphia, uh, I went into a laboratory that was a neuroblastoma laboratory run by Garrett Berdor. And I was very naive at the time. I hadn't been in a lab before. Uh, I'm an MD, not a PhD, and I didn't expect to love laboratory science as much as I ended up doing. But I knew I was very interested in leukemia. So if you wonder why I would pick a neuroblastoma lab when I was interested in leukemia, it was because I was just naive enough to think that what was most important was the mentoring and the quality of the science that was being taught to me. How do you find a good question? How do you study it? And how do you get answers that whether you prove what you hoped was right or not, you've done it rigorously and you can move to the next big question. And then I thought afterwards, if I wanted to be a lab-based scientist, I would be able to transition to leukemia. And I think that uh, that would be far more difficult because you spend so much time developing a foundation in an area. But luckily it never became an issue because uh, under Garrick's guidance, I quickly became fascinated by neuroblastoma, by the ways the biology differed in children where you could take a tumor out of them and under the microscope see exactly the same appearance and yet you knew from things as simple as the age of the child and what you knew about the tumor genetics even at a very cursory level that you could see very different predicted outcomes for that tumor and that was fascinating and it ran the gamut from this one's going to go away by itself to this is going to be a problem and and we're going to need to treat it with the maximally aggressive treatment we have and we're still going to have to hope that we get the outcome we want. And, and still with that challenge. Uh, it's very interesting that uh, um, your uh, your history and, and entry into that, it's a, it's a common theme of uh, being partnered with the, the right mentor. Um, and uh, as Dr. Mathe talked about with the, with Dr. Evans and, uh, and multiple people have had that experience with, with Dr. Brader, I guess, in our uh, podcast previously as well. So uh, it, it's funny how uh, life takes those little turns <laughs> yes. uh, that way. So. Um, but yeah, certainly, neuroblastoma, a, a conundrum um, biologically. So what kind of uh, approaches have you been able to glean um, from the disease in that way? Well, I think one of the things that was uh, most apparent when you look at the tumor uh, 
in trying to understand why the bad behaving tumors behaved badly was the MYC gene, or the be more specific, the MYC-N gene, which was amplified in a, about 40% of kids with the high-risk type of tumor. And, uh, and Garrett had been instrumental in identifying that amplification event and, and demonstrating how important it was and defining how aggressive the tumor would be. And, uh, and really the, the first gene to, be, to demonstrate a, a clinical relevance. Absolutely. And, uh, and so on the, on the positive side of what that's led to, it's, it's justified centralizing testing for all children with neuroblastoma because it has such an important prognostic impact. Uh, which just by nature of wanting to centralize it allowed us to request tumors from everybody so we could give them this service and uh, downstream of having the tumors come in was our ability to get permission from the families to take the residual tumor that wasn't needed for the test and to bank it and with their permission to share it with investigators worldwide and through that biobanking effort that's been operative now for 15 plus years we've now sent neuroblastoma specimens uh, to 13 different countries. Uh, we have about 200 approved protocols and we've sent 17,000 tumor samples wow. uh, out the door. And that's what families said to us. They, you know, they don't want us to take these samples and create some, uh, s some visual banking system. Mm -hmm. They want these tumors to go out to people who have ideas. And I think the MCN discovery and the need to test it has had a lot of downstream benefits, and that's one of the more important ones, I think. Yeah, quite dramatically. Um, Dr. Hargerty actually is the uh, the director of the CAG Neuroblastoma Tumor Bank and, and leads that effort, and, uh, and and quite skillfully, I, I must say, as a recipient of some of those samples. Um, and actually, uh, uh, um, it was uh, something that Dr. Haber uh, noted as well um, in her conversation with us, that really she wouldn't have wasn't going to be able to make the advances that she made in her lab until she was able to get specimens from uh, from us stateside. So uh, it, it really does stress the, the need for uh, the collaboration right, in that way. Right. And it's a collaboration not just amongst us, but as you said, with the families. And really every, making sure everything is, is coming full circle in that way. Well, I think, yeah, I think that uh, the stewardship of those specimens is very important because what I think of when I see a request is, you know, what would the, you know, if there are deficiencies in the science, then our job is not to say, no, you can't have specimens. It's to have a process of engaging the scientists that probably have far more expertise in the area they're studying, but maybe not as much in this particular tumor, and to say, well, here's what we do know about the tumor behavior. Maybe we can annotate it this way and provide these specimens. So rather than having a yes, no, our default is yes, but we want to provide you the sample set that would have the highest likelihood of giving you data that would answer your question convincingly. And sometimes that's pilot work, and sometimes it's a bigger definitive test. But it's uh, it's been a very uh, interesting thing to, to, to be involved with, and, and I think it's one of the things that, uh, that within COG we, we can be quite proud of. Absolutely so. Um, as, as you noted, for our patients who have high-risk disease, whether it's because of, of amplification of the, the uh, MCN gene or other uh, risk factors that, that we know, for example, age, as you noted, they receive literally everything under the sun right now. And we're getting better with their approaches, and we're able to extend some time. But 
we're, we're still having some problems in getting durable cures for the majority of these patients. And uh, a lot of your work is focused on novel approaches, finding new ways to target these, uh, these diseases. So can you tell us a little bit about, uh, about what you're working on right now in the lab? Sure. Uh, one of the areas that we've been uh, most excited to work on has been an area where we have an embarrassing paucity of understanding, even though if you ask a family and if you ask a pediatric oncologist where our biggest knowledge deficit is, it would be this area of understanding multi-therapy resistance. So, so unlike adult cancers that also can have poor survival odds and be difficult to cure if the surgeon can't remove them, uh, in which the tumors have no drugs in which they respond to. Uh, these high-risk pediatric cancers, neuroblastoma among them, are different in that most of these children, in, in kind of a, a, an unfortunate irony, are very responsive uh, to therapy. At first. At, at first. And so we know that the probability odds are around 50% for that tumor type. And we also know from being in this field long enough that that we shouldn't be misled by these dramatic responses to chemotherapy. That's a necessary part of being in the 50% we hope everybody ends up in where they're cured. Uh, you won't get there if your tumor can't respond. But, but far too often, the response is not a durable response. And despite continuing to give intensive therapy and transplant and following that up with radiotherapy and biotherapy and immunotherapy, we find that the tumors recur and when they recur, they're frequently resistant to the drugs they had before, which makes a certain amount of intuitive sense. But they're also often resistant to drugs they've never seen before. Uh, and so there's this sort of profound, broad resistance. And, and for those of us who, who work in the clinic also, we see children after relapse where we know that there's very little we're going to be able to do to impact their tumor in a meaningful way. Maybe we can slow it down, provide quality and some, some extra time but that falls far short of what our hope was. Uh, and so trying to understand the difference between the tumor cells that were there at the beginning that responded and the tumor cells that we meet when the tumor relapses has been one of the areas we've spent a lot of time and we're trying to understand how the decision-making machinery of the cell, and, and by this I'm talking specifically about an organelle called the mitochondria, which is an, an energy-producing organelle, but also is the platform by which all the signals that tell a cell whether it should stay alive that moment or kill itself uh, are executed. It's sort of like a, a live-die thermostat for a cancer cell. And there's an arm race. I mean, we provide drugs whose sole intention is to drive these death signals to the mitochondria, and tumor cells are constantly rewiring themselves so that they provide a buffer against those death signals and by studying the mitochondria themselves in tumors at diagnosis compared to at relapse we've been able to begin to make some headway in understanding how are the mitochondria being rewired what are the deficits that make a mitochondria in a relapse cell no longer respond to a death signal and we think this is really important for a couple of reasons. One is it's very consistent with all we know about relapse disease. If you wanted to design a super cancer cell that would resist an arsenal of different drugs that bother the cell in different dramatic ways, 
you wouldn't alter the targets themselves of each and every drug. That would be inefficient. You would go as far downstream as possible and make the alteration of the last possible step mm -hmm. where the death decision is made. And if you could rewire that mitochondrial decision point to be biased in favor of never letting that cell turn on its death program, then that would be something that, if you're a cancer cell, would be a good thing to have done. And that's where we think our selection from all this intense therapy is arising. And so we can explain a lot of what we see in the clinic from this model. Mm -hmm. We can begin to ask questions about, well, what makes the cell do that? How does the cell accomplish that change? And, and most importantly of all, if we can understand what factors are now missing or extra at the mitochondria, can we add them or block them and restore the signaling to the way we had at the beginning? Mm -hmm. And so it's still in its infancy, but this is an area that I think could be very impactful. It also, in my mind, even though I'm not an immunologist, it leads me to have a great deal of enthusiasm for the immunotherapies that are showing activity against relapse disease because the immunotherapy killing of a cancer cell doesn't require the mitochondria. The immunologic cell itself identifies the cancer cell and kills it from the outside, right. as opposed to telling it to turn on its death from the inside. Right, so most of the therapies that we use, uh, at least up front and in consolidation, it's all, they're all poisons. They require the cell to, to give up, to surrender at some point. And that's where with immunotherapy, as you're saying, instead we're bringing the army to the cell and we're causing the death from the outside. Exactly, and, and it's, it's independent of whether your mitochondrial is the kind that would have committed death if the drug, a standard drug, had been used or not. Mm -hmm. You're not requiring that. And the other thing I think that at least understanding this does to help us is that we've, we've all been disappointed in how very attractive drug candidates perform in the clinic mm -hmm. when they're given to children who, for ethical reasons, are only exposed to these new drugs when they have relapsed or refractory high-risk disease. And so we have a wealth of preclinical and animal and in-test tube types of experiments that say, ooh, this new drug looks very promising. And then we study it in a setting where to get an activity, the drug has to hit its target and send a stress signal to the <laughs> mitochondria and have the mitochondria kill the cell, or we don't know that, that any of that other stuff happened. Right. And I think we're throwing out drugs that are possibly very useful because we study them against tumors where the barrier to getting those mitochondria to do what they have to do is so high that we don't see the signal, the activity that we're hoping to see. Kind of going with, along with that theme of instead of doing more and instead of working harder while we're treating these patients, because we continue to escalate therapy and escalate therapy, and instead we're really trying to say, let's work smarter, and what can we add in with what we're currently doing to make everything more effective? Right, and... Uh, and I think that's something we've recognized is that when we've looked at the survival curves over five-year intervals over the last 20 years, we're seeing slow but steady progress in survival, but it's at the cost of ever more toxic therapies. And so our survivor group is slightly bigger, but more of them pay a price mm -hmm. by way of 
lifelong toxicity for too many. Uh, and we're seeing that law of diminishing returns. I mean, we, we can't give much more chemotherapy. We can't give that much more radiotherapy in a tolerable way. And so the next hope would be that we would get smarter, as you alluded to, at identifying you know, key targets within the cancer that were most responsible for its aggressive behavior, for its survival under duress of standard treatments. And, uh, and I think that the sequencing programs where we take tumors of, in this case, neuroblastoma, and read the entirety of their DNA from end to end, looking and searching for all of the, the smoking guns, the mutations that happen again and again and again, mm -hmm. like the NMIC amplification, you know, finding all of the other mutations that were going to be so important that we would then say, you're a target because you wouldn't be seen in this many tumors if you weren't really important in the biology of the tumor. And the, you know, the, the hope for that approach has been largely unfulfilled because we're finding that outside of NMIC, which we've known about for 30-odd years, there aren't that many recurrently mutated genes that become actual targets. There's ALK, mm -hmm. and ALK is mutated in some way in about 10%, uh, and there's MCN, which is mutated in at least 40%, uh, and depending on how you define MCN activated, I would argue it's a much larger percentage. So in my lab, and under Garrett's training previously, and now in my own lab, we've always asked, well, how do we get at NMIC? Mm -hmm. I mean, if this has been front and center for 30 years, why haven't we translated it into a treatment that can impact these children? Absolutely. And there are a lot of nuanced arguments in the world of pharmacology and medicinal chemistry that will explain why MIC as a drug target is such a difficult one. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have any of the features that a medicinal chemist sees as imminently targetable. Right. Uh, it talks to lots of different proteins and it, it, it interacts with them in ways that are very hard to unravel. Right there. Though Many of, of those arguments have also been been laid aside recently, and the, you know, the, uh, there had been a long-standing view that transcription factors are never going to be able to target to be able to be targeted, and and some of these promiscuous factors with shallow uh, um, binding uh, capacities uh, were going to be targetable. But now we're we're going after them, we're finding them in, in kind of novel ways that you can stabilize it, going after the uh, the, the proteins that support those complexes. Or just trying to disrupt the 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 whole interaction site, not trying to find something that's right. stick in there. If you get enough of it in there and keep it around long enough, you can disrupt that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that uh, because it's a thirty-year unsolved riddle, I think we all would admit that nobody yet has the answer. Right. So to presume that there's one way to go after it and ignore others would be would be silly. So I think that the uh, you know, there are very, very good approaches that are getting traction where mm -hmm. they, like you said, destabilize the protein. There may be some some cellular signal that makes the MCN protein more stable. And if you can block that signal, you can get rid of NMIC. And I, and I think that that's really a welcome approach. Our lab has taken a slightly different approach, which is to say, if we don't think we could successfully antagonize MCN itself, 
if we look at all the things that Mick is doing in a cancer cell that makes it behave the way it does. Mm -hmm. Now, Mick does cancer cells with Mick amplification don't spread and cause harm to children because they by themselves have too much Mick protein. Mm -hmm. It's that Mick is turning on all of these programs and behaviors uh, because of what it does to the the DNA and the way the DNA is read by a cell. It's the, the master puppets here. Exactly. And so we've sort of asked, well, out of all the things that it's doing, are there some that are more important than others? Are there some that perhaps a cancer cell that's using Mick to be itself can't do without? Right. And that rolls right into uh, uh, your other big project, which we're very excited to hear about, the, with um, polyamine inhibitors. Exactly. So, so looking at the way MIC amplified tumors turn on sort of patterns of genes to create a cancer cell that's very aggressive, we noticed, and other labs noticed working on other cancers that use MIC, that they commonly dysregulate these pools of, of, of compounds that are called polyamines and they're not proteins and so they don't get a lot of uh, directed uh, discovery efforts but but people constantly came back to this notice that when you turn on Nick you turn on the cells need for polyamines and, and what's interesting is that polyamine levels are high in almost every tumor type mm -hmm. and in highly proliferative non-tumor tissues mm -hmm. as well. They seem to be necessary to support all of the things that Mick is trying to do. Right. And we have uh, used a variety of model systems involving mice that are engineered to develop a neuroblastoma and other types of mice in which we can take human neuroblastomas and grow them in, in them and tested inhibitors of enzymes that create these polyamines. So I guess the, the sort of the theme here would be, if we don't think we can get MYC, but we can prove to ourselves that MYC needs polyamines to have the cell behavior be aggressive, then maybe we can poison the ability to make polyamines, and MYC can still do its other things, but that cancer cell will suffer. Right. And so we... So, so in a fashion, you can think of, the, of, uh, of MYC needing a... It's, uh, it's not exactly a food source, but something analogous to that. And so by targeting the, the food source, the polyamines, you can starve out the, the, not necessarily the whole cancer cell, but at least the part that's making it so aggressive. Exactly. And, you, and you'd, you'd, ha you'd, you'd have to be skeptical mm -hmm. when you started. You'd have to say, Mick does so many things, I, I'm skeptical that you can turn off one thing and have a real impact. Uh, so I think that would be important. You'd also have to... Uh, really try to understand what's downstream of the polyamines. And what we've come to, to appreciate is that what Mick wants to do is, is sort of coordinate a cell dividing into two cells where each of the cells is the same size as the parent cell. And so that sounds so rudimentary when you say it out loud, but people forget all the time that that takes a lot of synthetic machinery. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's one thing for a cancer cell to say, I want to become two, I'm going to double my DNA and separate it. Everybody mm -hmm. remembers that part of a cell dividing. Right. But they forget that you have to double every component of a cell. And so Mick is really critical in governing all those downstream events that help you create twice as much lipids mm -hmm. for all your organelles and membranes. And importantly, the, the fuel 
for your energy, mm -hmm. and then the protein machinery. And we think for a variety of reasons in our laboratory experiments that it's the, it's the effect on the protein machinery that may have the greatest effect on the tumor cells. And basically, they, a mixed cell really needs to be able to control its protein machinery. And if, if you deprive it, and depriving polyamines does do that, mm -hmm. then you really cripple it. And we've been very pleased with the activity that we've seen in our mouse models, and we've done them in multiple different ways and different settings, trying to, to convince ourselves that it's that it's a generic impact mm -hmm. of polyamine depletion when you've when you've got a MIC-driven tumor. And it's been enough of a convincing story that while we're far from being able to say it's gonna work, because we're realistic to know that many things don't, we're quite convinced that it's ready to have its its trial, and so there are a number of places now testing polyamine depletion, usually mm -hmm. using a drug like DFMO, mm -hmm. which is given orally, which is convenient for children. Uh, it poisons the major enzyme that makes polyamines. It's mm -hmm. the one that's directly turned on by NIC. It's called ODC1, mm -hmm. uh, and DFMO poisons that, and uh, there's a variety of trials now asking a rather straightforward question, which is that if you do poison ODC1 and can't prevent, and, and can't allow a cell to make its polyamines and have its protein fix met, mm -hmm. uh, maybe you can impact that tumor. Right. And, and really honing in on, on the fact that the cancer cells are particularly sensitive to that need, whereas uh, most of our normal cells can either get by without needing it, or, uh, or find some other way to get enough to do what it needs to do. Exactly right. And it's not too far afield from what we've known about why chemotherapy works in the first place. Right. There's something about cancer cells that in their haste to reproduce themselves and race through more and more cell divisions so they make more of themselves, they get a little bit sloppy in their machinery of repairing mm -hmm. problems uh, and making good decisions about their fitness. And so a lot of times, you're right, when you, when you provide what looks like a general poison, you actually see far more effect against the cancer cells because they have already engendered so much stress themselves mm -hmm. in racing to do what they're trying to do that they're more vulnerable. All right. they're, all, they're already running on, on two of the four wheels of a car, so to speak. So if you can just kind of nudge them over and tip them over, then, uh, then uh, the, the battle is won. In, right. in, uh, though uh, um, it's it is truly just a battle in a larger war in that setting, certainly. So absolutely, um, it, it's interesting the uh, the pathways you're talking about. Um, the we know that uh, multi drug resistance is an issue in a multitude of cancers. Almost all of our pediatric cancers, uh, we use a lot a, co a large combination of chemotherapies to uh, to tackle them. Uh, and uh, though McGann is uh, amplified in some other pediatric cancers, but not a lot. We know that increased MIC expression of, of its, if its uh, related gene uh, is present in uh, a number of types of cancers, both pediatric and adult. Uh, are you examining uh, these pathways in other tumor types, whether they're pediatric or, or just cancers in general? We, we, in our own lab, have not been. Okay. We uh, recognize that in being sort of single-mindedly focused on neuroblastoma, we're possibly losing opportunities to follow drugs to a successful use in other tumor types. But uh, 
you know, at the end of the day, everybody who's in this field has to decide what it is that they think is most important to address. And for a variety of reasons, uh, my own lab has answered that question by saying we think that a major unmet need is is high-risk neuroblastoma. Mm -hmm. uh, no argument there, certainly. <laughs> and and we're, we're very quick to share, and vice versa from other disease groups, you know, insights into what might be working. Uh, so, for instance, I know that even though our lab doesn't look at lymphoma, mm -hmm. there are, which is another NIC-driven tumor, mm -hmm. there are a number of labs, adult labs and pediatric labs, that have used a polyamine-depleting approach uh, in various models of lymphoma. Uh, I know very well that in the colon cancer world, mm -hmm. there are a number of, uh, of people that are very much of the mindset that polyamine depletion has a role to play there, not only against the formed cancers, but even in preventing cancers in at-risk individuals. So even though my lab isn't looking beyond neuroblastoma, we're quick to point out to other MIC cancer people that maybe this is something that they may want to explore, uh, and we know firsthand of, of lots of examples where that's happening. And, and the studies help to inform each other. I mean, there's a lot of crosstalk in the polyamine community about how do we leverage this approach. Absolutely. And, and it goes back to that theme uh, that we've been hearing uh, from the ANR conference that, that we have to do this collaboratively. And it's not just within our, our disease type, but across diseases um, and uh, to be able to make the, those advances. So, so it's great to hear that, that these are things that are applicable to a variety of cancers and, and that you're a great uh, uh, research citizen in that way <laughs> to, to communicate that with, with others. So. Uh, that's wonderful. Um, we're, we're very excited about those uh, um, advances, and uh, particularly the uh, the DFMO is uh, is currently in a phase one trial um, with a, with another agent, and so we'll be excited to hear about uh, what the results are of, of that study. Um, so with that said, um, it's uh, it's been great to talk with you. Is there anything else that you'd like to to share with our families? Anything? in particular that feel is particularly important for them to know about what you're doing or what our approach has been in pediatric cancer? I think that the neuroblastoma community is, uh, is a strong uh, advocacy community. I think the, uh, the parents' message is, is that what we're doing is not good enough and it's not mm -hmm. said in, a, in, a, in, a, in a anything but a productive way and uh, we know that. And uh, we've never looked at survival curves going up from 30 to 50 as anything less than a, a challenge and a, and a job nowhere near accomplished. So uh, I think most of us working with, with this disease model uh, recognize how far we have to go. And, uh, and we're doing our best to, to attack this tumor in, in multiple different ways, uh, collaborating worldwide to try to understand it better and to, to bring better therapies that are more effective and less toxic to bear. And so uh, the message uh, that we feel, well, even when it's not directly said, is that we have a long way to go and, and we recognize that. Uh, but we do think that there are some things emerging from a variety of different areas of, of, of understanding and discovery that might have an impact on this tumor. So. Uh, so I think that uh, that it's an exciting time, as well. So, uh, so a lot of challenges, but but a lot of hope. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, Dr. Margetti, thank you again very much, and uh, um, best travels. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you both for that great conversation. This is Tim Kripe, your usual host of TWIPO. 
This episode was number 48, recorded on May 23rd, 2014. We are happy to read your emails during a future podcast to discuss your comments and questions if you send us a note at twippo at solvingkidscancer.org. You can follow us on Twitter at Twippo Podcast, and you can sign up for automatic notification feed when we post new episodes. Thanks to the team at Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. The team includes Donna Ludwinski, our executive producer, Jenny Song, director of communications, and Scott Kennedy and John London, the founding co-directors of Solving Kids Cancer. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology.